0: JP Productions.
1: You are now listening to the Sierra Unravelled podcast. This space was created to inspire, to encourage and to connect to all those who have gone through life and managed to stay sane. I mix my own personal drama, <laughs> I mean trauma, mental health, motherhood, domestic violence awareness, spirituality and a whole lot of Sierra Unravelled. I'm so glad you're here. January 9, 2015, Christopher Turr, a civilian worker at Guantanamo Bay's naval base went missing. On January eleventh, just a few days later, his body was found and his wife, Laura Sabanash, was left to deal with the aftermath of what took place at that time. The events leading up to that moment forced her to examine more than 20 years of abuse and the denial and deceits that occur in all households subjected to domestic violence. Today I have her on the show to discuss how domestic violence has impacted her life. I would like to acknowledge the amount of courage it takes to write a book and then speak out publicly. A lot of women have no choice but to live in silence, and to some extent, we all have at some point. I want to express my deepest gratitude for sharing these bits of your life with me and express my deepest condolences for your late husband You are an incredible woman, and welcome to Sierra Unraveled. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into this. Your story is absolutely incredible, and I believe you have so much knowledge and insight on this crazy thing that a lot of women face, but a lot of us are afraid to talk about. So for more than 20 years, you lived in the shadow of domestic violence. Can you explain or share why you feel it's important to share your story?
0: Um, My daughters and I, after my husband had died in 2015 and everything had kind of erupted with headlines at that time. We had spent a lot of time listening to other people's narratives of the story of what came out and it was a lot of silence from our end. We were told that it would be better if we didn't respond, if we would just be quiet. So as we were sitting silently watching news reports and and social media accounts, blogs come out around us, and people who were at that time friends or even what we considered family members responding or responding with us and we couldn't we had nothing to say and but I we were the ones that lived in this house and it was a way for us in order to do in, in this book collectively to come out to everybody and talk about what life was like for us and for me for the 20 years before he had died and living a life that in the perspective of what everybody else saw or what they think they saw wasn't our reality or what they read about in these news reports inside my house was a completely different lifestyle and it was spilling over before he died to some people some people had witnessed the abuse some people had seen different side of my life towards the end and even throughout the 20 years but it was it was the day-to-day that i was living and even my daughters it was very different than what everybody else thought they were hearing or in their mind of a person that they had put on a pedestal of an amazing human being so the book came out because it was our way of answering and telling our story so that people could really understand. You don't know what it's like living in a house every day. You don't come home with us. You don't see these things. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't see it. A lot of people, people make assumptions every day when they work with somebody, when they go out and have dinner with somebody and they make assumptions of what life is like for them. There were a lot of people who even went so far as to send messages to my children about how they felt they knew what he was like as a father, even though my daughters lived in that house with him. So this book was a compilation of life in our house and documented life, so it, it, it's not a story that's why it's our truth versus just a story.
1: Yeah, definitely your truth. Has it given you um, and your daughters like a peace factor at all?
0: Somewhat, I mean, the writing it, you know, I think people have a, an idea that when you write a book, it's an instant cathartic and healing process, but in some respects it is, it is a bit of traumatic process too because some of the time is, you know, I pushed a lot of it away And so I relived really 20 years. And then on top of that, I had to tack on with that um, all of the years. And then I had to put it out there for everybody. So once again, I went on parade for all of those that are out there who had their own viewpoints about what they believed life was like. There is a lot of re-trauma that happens when you do books like this for, for everybody. So before it came out, we had to kind of put ourselves into a really good, honest perspective of that this was, that we were good with it. And no matter where everybody else was coming after we put this out, that at this point that we felt it was becoming a cathartic road journey for us. And it no longer mattered what other people thought in this process. But getting there was a little rough
1: <laughs> yeah no i'm i'm sure i've been working on a book for like a year now and sometimes it's just so triggering i'm like i haven't gone through enough therapy to be writing a book about this yet i'm gonna have to put it on the back burner right <laughs> so i i get it for sure so in your book caged you talk about the process of grieving after your husband passed away um how do you how did you guys reconcile that loss and grief after that abusive relationship it's very complicated it is
0: and i you know i've I've had conversations about this you know with other people as well and you know grief for for on a normal level when somebody passes away and you know they have the five stages and and you go through and everybody has this normal process and it's normal for an individual person how they how they process somebody passing very close to them but now when it's an abuser relationship i mean i spent more than half my life with this person Uh and to have him pass and it's not necessarily that there aren't many other people who go through this and even if you aren't still married or it's not a, a parent abusive relationship there is a different grief process that we go through and trying to understand well if if things were different if they were better would we would things be different would our we question the time period that we were with them would we feel differently about ourselves so not only do we take on the grief of a person that is past, passed but now we also question the time period that we're with them so it is a lot of it's a lot of mixed emotion going through the grieving process and my girls went through um, a grieving process and very different as well a lot of anger a lot of sadness, and some of it, and at the same time, and flipping back and forth, and um, there were even people who wanted to to grieve with us, um, who she shared stories of their similarities, but they weren't the same because our our situation is so very different. Right, and you know, there's there's grief groups, but it's not abuse grief groups, and so we have no place in in those areas so we we really had to function with ourselves and and so we did and um, we were very close and we were we shared with each other and um allowed ourselves to in our own way our own time and how we dealt with our our ourselves um but we became very open and honest about our healing process realized that you know our therapy was in a sense the three of us, during that oh. process, there wasn't a lot that anybody else was um, able to help us with. So it was a very lonely and challenging time for us um, to to get through the process. Um, and it took several years to realize that there are many others that go through abusive grief process, and not unlike what we were dealing with, but at the same time also challenging and feeling quite alone.
1: Yeah, it's. Like I said, it's very complicated because I'm not sure being a survivor of abuse, if I would be like relieved that I was no longer in danger, but I also think I would hurt a lot, um, missing the, that the loss of that love that could have been. And then also knowing that I can never get closure, is was really rough. So do you feel that, um, love and abuse can coexist together?
0: no. <laughs> And, and that's an answer that I think I've changed, um, over the years
1: Mm -hmm.
0: in, in some respects, I think that's part of where that grief process was so challenging is that I spent time grieving a love that I had spent over half my life with and, and feeling very challenged for how many ways with how could I have made this better for us, except for. In abusive relationships, abuse is not love. So what I grieved was a love that didn't exist, a love that I was, I wanted to have. So I grieved for something that I, I had wanted and I wished for. And that's what I had to let go of. I had to let go of something that I was hoping and wishing and I, I wanted to have, but didn't exist. And make peace with that. I grieved for a person, somebody I shared my life with, somebody that needed help. And the love and coexisting in a relationship, no, because abusers are abuse is about control. Mm-hmm. Once I really got through that part of it, then I realized that part of my grief process. I really could learn to let go and you know and it also helped me in understanding myself in part of that is that you know I I did want more and I did deserve more and understanding what does love really mean uh, and love is an equal partnership not somebody who has a control balance issue so no I think that that was that was something that during that grief process and and getting further along into it in a lot of therapy,
1: <laughs> yeah, um,
0: that worked through understanding those process.
1: Yeah, I I think I would agree with that. I think like the beginning of my healing process, I would be like, oh yeah, definitely that's why I stayed for so long. But then like, I know that's not the only reason why I stayed. There's a, there's a lot more to it than just that, but moving along further therapy and just doing the work on myself and really just taking a step back it's like oh that wasn't love at all i just thought that it was so
0: it really is because i think over time for 20 years i i can look back in the 20 years we were married and i was trying to be something that i wasn't for somebody that on his own level his need for something I was never going to meet whether it was, I changed my hair color. I changed my weight. I changed how I looked, you know, I changed how I, how I was as a mother, a housewife, what jobs I had, what I did, how I reacted, how I answered questions to him. It didn't matter. I was never going to achieve what he wanted or how I perceived what he wanted. So it wouldn't have mattered. And that's not love.
1: Yeah. So much pressure on you to have to, to on anyone to just go through that. Like, Oh, it's rough. I'm man, I give you so much credit because the strength that you have is absolutely unbelievable. So can you describe what it was like to live that behind closed door life to the one that you were living in public? especially with your daughters involved too, I imagine they had to live the dual life as well.
0: It was very romantic in the beginning mm-hmm. and, um, when I met my husband and I felt like it was a voluntary role. I gave up everything for him. I left the college I was attending to be closer. Um, I, I wanted to be so enveloped in him. You know, he would tell me it's us against the world and The more I gave into that, the less everything around me seemed to be important. I didn't see so many, uh, you know, the red flags. Didn't matter if somebody said, you know, Laura, I think this is not in your best interest. Or if they had anything negative to say, I looked at them as the enemy. But as time went on, I started to feel as if I had climbed into that hole and there was no way out. And so you do begin to see out how the, it shifts and I could feel myself slipping away. It's almost like a piece of you dies every day uh-huh. until you're just a shell. So being able to have a facade, what lives in the house, not go outside of the house, becomes actually very easy to put on a fake smile to, to be the person they want later on in the years. It was draining enough and I was seeing that world that I wanted again that was within grasp and so now I was I was getting to where I was starting to reach out it was a little frightening at that point because sometimes I would have people who were aggressively trying to help and others who kind of laughed at it like it was a joke and in between there was my husband who would toy with it and remind me that my my only place was i in life was because he gave it to me and he could as easily take it away as i had it you know i've now spent so many years in the lifestyle that you do feel as if you run out of ways and you're exhausting the time period so the game that you've lived so long it starts to become just, it's, it is just the way it is. You start to feel like there are not very many options left. I did see where my girls were getting to a point that they their options had now opened and they could leave. They didn't have to live in my world anymore. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want them there.
1: So I vaguely definitely remember those days like when I was pregnant, I was still working full time during my pregnancy, and at home I was still dealing with the abuse, so it was rough, but I felt like my job was my, my safe haven, I was able to escape, like my commute to work was amazing, and I loved my supervisor at the time, so it was like my place to get away. So now stepping back into the career world, I'm super curious on how you were able to pursue such a successful career while dealing with all this crazy stuff at home.
0: Sure. Like you said, going to work was escape. And up until we went to GetMo, most of my jobs were secondary. Um, We moved Fairly frequently um, every couple of years. So I had both of my daughters. We chose not to do daycare or um, unless we had family watching our children. And so I was the one that would leave work or, and that made me fairly unreliable. So I would have jobs that were either within confines of, you know, if they were at school or preschool, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, I actually worked for a learning center where my daughter could go to preschool there, and it was right there next to the elementary school where my oldest was. And so I didn't have to worry about that. I was with them all the time, which mm-hmm. was really nice. Until I went to, we went to GetMo, I really didn't have the full-time career I would have liked to have had that I was going to school for. It was, you know, and some of them were temp work while I was waiting. But I enjoyed it. And I worked with really great people during that time and met um, and the time that I was there, it was my time and I could use my intellect and people enjoy, you know, I could have conversations and people asked me things and relied on me. And it didn't matter whether I was, you know, a secretary or I was working, I've worked in IT departments up until that point, or I was an instructor and I had was going to school finishing my degrees. And so I would, after the girls would go to bed, I would do my homework and sometimes till three, four in the morning Mm -hmm. and then also work during the day. And that was great because then as I was able to move up into other career areas and I was, I I taught college and um, and then I went counseling youth, sometimes counseling the very same things that were going on in my house.
1: Wow. First, you're a super mom, but also give you so much kudos because I tried to volunteer for the domestic violence shelter and I literally went through training and I was like, I can't do this. I'm not ready. So
0: it was hard, but I felt like I was doing things that helped other people or I was making a difference. I was useful.
1: Yeah. You also could relate on a level that most people can't. So,
0: and then when we went to get Mo, my girls were both older, um, in the sense that they could, they were independent. So now I could do the full-time position and I started as an instructor then worked my way up to the director position it was nice at that time to have somebody to have people who looked and respected the information that i was putting out and it was okay if we had differences i respected people's differences too but it was respectful differences Uh i didn't have people calling me names um or who looked at me because of my degrees and felt I was useless. And as every bit as much as I looked at other people with different degrees than me. Um, and so it was I, it was very validating to be in this um, arena and be outside of, so it was euphoric actually. Um, then I always knew once I went back home, I had to go back into my own life. Gitmo was very hard because we, Unlike other uh, military bases um, where you can just go home, we didn't. We all worked together. We lived in the same base together. We went to the same restaurants. We went to the same parties. So essentially, we eat, sleep, and drink all together 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we did that for several years. So my home life started to bleed out to people in the community towards the end. And so it wasn't so much that my life was a secret anymore.
1: It's just wrapping my head around it. Like I was reading the book and like, I'm a wanderer. So for me to be in the same place with the same people, I'm also a homebody. So I think I would definitely lose it. (laughs) (laughs) I would not be pleasant. I don't think, I really don't think so. And I I'd consider myself a pretty pleasant person, but in that situation, I don't know. I might be a little wild. (laughs)
0: It's a beautiful place and they have, the water was so beautiful and the weather was so beautiful and it could be so peaceful and so beautiful and for everything that could go wrong with a small town atmosphere, there could all, there also could be things that could be so right about it. But the problem is, is that when there was the wrong part of it was also, it could be very wrong when you need help.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the weather and the scenery would be my safe haven. I'm definitely I would probably be by myself as much as possible out in nature for sure just to stay sane, especially under all those circumstances. So I know I didn't have I don't think I was seeking counseling too much during my stints of Domestic violence relationships, but it was more so afterwards to make sure I wouldn't go back. Um, what was your experience like seeking counseling?
0: So during our marriage, we, my husband and I, actually had marriage counseling on and off several times in the twenty years, and he would actually left marriage counseling abruptly multiple times, and that would end the marriage counseling aspect. And
1: right, and
0: I <laughs> would see the counselor. And then that would also end our counseling session because he was not interested in the aspect of what was coming out of those counseling sessions. Mm
1: -hmm. They don't like to be under a microscope because they don't want to be told that they're doing something wrong by a third party. No.
0: And, and I, we even saw male counselors. So if, if there was a feeling of, which I was okay with, so it wasn't like it was, you know, we were seeing female counselors, and he could feel like it was somebody pitting against him. So, but it wasn't like the identification of this is dangerous and you really should get out of this was being done. No, that just the counseling was ending, and um, he left me at a counseling session one time, and um, I had to wait for him to come get me while I sat outside. He was so angry. Um, he had court mandated alcohol related counseling. So there was counseling for him throughout the years and it was quite unsuccessful, obviously.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I also feel like counseling doesn't work unless the person wants, is open to it as well. So if you send someone in and they don't actually want to be there, they won't be receptive to the information.
0: Absolutely. And then afterwards, you know, I had, because I worked in the, Uh, family services with the military and part of what we did was domestic violence um, advocacy and and trying to get help afterwards and i was provided nothing and i was actually told that if i needed services um, i could go find something off the installation after i was transferred and but even while i was in getmo um, they wouldn't provide me services um, I was lucky that somebody I had somebody who was who was advocating for I would have had my daughters and I would have had nothing. When I got here to the states, there there was a shelter here that at the time did some assistance for me and kind of got me on back on track. But even at that time, they were kind of on the fence with it because he had already died. So I was technically out of danger in their mind.
1: But you still have all the aftermath, though, too. I feel like...
0: Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, I I just... I feel like trying to navigate life after being in that situation for so long or any amount of time at all period is just as difficult as being in, in the midst of it.
0: Right. And so, I mean, they did help, but they're mindset was so i I realized that well i mean they were helping me so i i don't want to say that it wasn't that i didn't but then i realized that means that others were not and then uh it took me several years as i was trying to get an an actual established counselor um, because Mm -hmm. most of them didn't do they weren't domestic violence related or trauma related they would work in other atmospheres and then of course COVID hit too and nobody was taking any patients, I guess, um, because apparently there was no domestic violence during COVID. And I mean that with utmost sarcasm and I finally ended up my, I'm very fortunate and I know there are many who are not, my insurance company, because my own doctor was not, would not give me a, um, any assistance when i and I did a referral or anything and was very clear in saying they don't provide that kind of referral service and i was crumbling in her office while i was telling her i'm i'm i can i'm not sleeping i'm having a, a lot of issues and i don't know what to do anymore and um, but my insurance company actually was who helped me so for so many that have so many issues actually it was my insurance company that ended up helping me because wow. they had you don't a, hear
1: that. You don't hear that very often.
0: <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. And so they had a, a referral service. And at that time, and I don't, I could do everything and they could get me with a licensed provider who I could uh, meet with. And I could do video or through, you know, telemedicine and they're licensed and in the state. And she is actually a domestic violence. That's she works with domestic violence victims um, and survivors.
1: Yeah. But it
0: took me to, I mean, I was so desperate. I, I, I didn't know who else. So I did reach out to my insurance and say, I, no, I can't get anyone to help me. No office in my in my area knows anybody or has no services, no appointments. Some, some offices were telling me they couldn't see me for six months. Wow. But yeah, so that was, I mean, it's an odd thing because a lot of, a lot of people coming out of these, the trauma or the issues or what they end up having to deal with after or as they're going through domestic violence, becomes such the, the trauma because for many, some deal with post-separation abuse. So it's not just that they get divorced or they walk away from partners. Many are still being re-victimized after they leave. And, or some people are having so many and Getting assistance. I don't think people realize how hard it is to to deal with um, and it doesn't matter whether you dealt with You were in it for six months or for myself 20 years or the aftermath that come out of it whether it's the parent child or husband and wife or uh, spouse in general um there, the effects from it are so much deeper than people realize.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, do you think that if you would have been, if you were able to seek proper or adequate counseling sooner, it would have been more beneficial, or you would have been able to leave?
0: My mom always says, you know, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, but I don't think, in some respects, we are any better today. Than we were when I was going through it during my twenty-year marriage. There are a lot of there are a lot of entities that will say, "Oh, we are so much better. We have these laws, and laws are only so good if they are enforced." Right. Um. Or the, there's funding, or who who gets the funding? Because I know a lot of places that are struggling because of those issues, or they the length of time it took to get it. Um, funding um, put through or trickle down, or how the laws are written and who they apply to, um, and the interpretations. So in some respects, the same conversations today are no different than they were when I was dealing with it in the 90s, the 2000s, and, and today. There's more information. I think there are, there are organizations who are far better at helping people like me who were struggling to understand what I needed to do if I was trying to leave, because that's where I was having a hard time or what my rights were. And Mm -hmm. because I was having somebody dangling over my head, how much in some respects that they owned me, that I was his property. And, you know, there are a lot of women out there who struggle with the concept of that in order to leave, that they will have to represent themselves pro bono, meaning that they will have no attorney because they don't have enough money.
1: Yeah. I was there at one point briefly. Sure. sure. And I
0: know, I know other women that did it too, and they have to think about what that means financially. And if they have children, how they have to get financials and support and, you know, all of that and depending on what state, there's a great website, uh, womenslaw.org, that I wish was there when I was years ago, when I was looking for stuff. Because each state has a different idea of the application of domestic violence. Um, Because just because you're going to divorce your spouse doesn't mean that the incidences of all of the domestic violence during the time you were married can be utilized during a divorce. Some states say that if you've allowed the abuser back in the house, that you have said that you're okay. Yeah. And so they, wa- they wash away the previous incidences of domestic violence, even if protective orders were used.
1: Yep, basically in Michigan, my experience is that I didn't file police reports the first two incidents, even though I had like text messages, pictures, All that good stuff, couple witnesses, like, it didn't matter. They're like, well, you didn't file a police report then, and for us to put your PPO in place now, um, he would basically have to cross another boundary after you've, like, verbally and had written documentation saying that he cannot come around you. And I'm like, it shouldn't be this difficult. And I also know a few women who are, are, like, dealing with stalkers, and they make it so hard to file a personal protection order against someone. It's crazy
0: um you know it's and because each of the states do outline it differently and the you know they tell you to well don't be mean or don't do this um you know during the time where after my husband um, died and i thought they were looking for my husband during these investigations the part of the questioning that was done with me was asking me why did you stay with him What did you do that made him so angry?
1: That is so awful. Those
0: are the questions that I got asked from part of the reason when in this book, when I talk about the systems that failed, it wasn't just the abuse of 20 years, but it also was the abuse that myself and many other women deal with many of these organizations that also, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because they fail us also
1: yeah no no one is trained properly to handle it no
0: um you know i'm i don't at this point i mean it is 2022 and so that's part of why i say it doesn't matter in some respects we're not really any further off today than we were 25 years ago because we still have agencies who don't help victims don't give them the position to do any better. Don't make them feel any more comfortable. And the the balance, the seesaw balance between offenders, abusers, and then victims and survivors, it's so tilted, and it's not in our favor. I was just going to say, and and I I want to be more positive about that because I feel like there are people out there that say, oh. It's such a negative message. And I'm like, but that's the problem. There are a lot of organizations as you get higher up into DC that paint it to be very positive. But those of us that live through it, it places a dangerous place for many of us when they don't paint the reality. And by all means, nobody should be living in these situations. But if we don't, paint reality then we put people in very dangerous situations when they have to make very conscious decisions about what their next step is
1: yeah it's, it's super super heavy stuff and pretty much I'd say through my podcasting journey one of my biggest things that I almost ask every person that's come on the show is what do we do you and me and just any day Joe schmo on the street like what do we what can we do to try and change the outlook on this? Because I know we're talking about it more, but there's gotta be more that we can do.
0: I feel that a lot of, um, there's a lot of programs on the the basic level, when somebody, when you know somebody, listen. I think the best thing that would have happened for me is that when I was talking with people and and trying to get help, there were a lot of people that were not listening. And yeah. even towards the end, when people turned their back on me and my children, because of what they think they know. Right. That's where the very beginning. They didn't, they didn't turn right, backs. That's where the very beginning Of this starts the mindset of people and who they how they support and where they come in and how they help somebody is is the very basics just listening and then starting a process and that's not aggressive support because I had people who were very aggressively trying to help at one point That's not helpful either. That's just as scary as living with an abuser too. But on the other entity there, or the, the higher up that you go up to DC, I, I wish they would stop trying to focus on so much of the punitive side. Punishing abusers on a punitive level is also punishing all of us as well. You're not helping any of us. You're actually making it far worse for us. It doesn't change abusive lines. And since it, it's a a line that probably started and it's very familial, they'd be far better off if they would get abusers help and, you know, and stop thinking that we'll, you know, we'll just, we'll lock everybody up because we don't stay in jail and who do they come after? Yeah. But at the very core, I think that if most people were just a tad more compassionate, For people who are trying to reach out I think we would see that it would start funneling around to a lot more assistance
1: I think I think it would be so helpful too that like especially judges like in my situation it's like why would I just make this stuff up for the front for the fun of it I don't want to live through this and you guys are just going to ignore everything that I've said and just deem me as the crazy one. It's like we're all a little crazy, let's admit it here, but I just want them to get better. I don't wish foul anything on them. I just want them to get help, but they don't see it like that. No.
0: And I think the states need to get consistency. You know, I'm I'm all for everybody having their own independence, but there are just some things, domestic violence is domestic violence. It can't be domestic violence in one state and you cross the state line and domestic violence has another definition because it makes it very easy for offenders to, like for me, you know, for every state we moved to, it changed the legality or the process of how, we could handle the situation. You know, yeah. we moved several times, and with each of those states, it changed how they viewed the domestic violence and if I wanted to leave him. Some states, uh, it would, as I've I've reviewed them. Some states, yeah, we probably could have dissolved it and it would have been no problem. Other states, by moving there, um, it made it even it made it almost impossible because, as far as they were concerned the moment we were living in the house together, it's like it dissolved any domestic violence that ever occurred previously. So I That's- It does. Crazy. So it's like, well, you're just waiting for one of them to be in a body bag before you address the situation. I'm like, I don't see yep. that makes sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that's, it's insane. So what are the most important things that you would tell other families or mothers that are currently living with domestic violence?
0: How strong they are and I know it feels very lonely, but you're not alone and Before you make the decision to to Tell your abuser if you're leaving that to please consider the safety plans and 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 contact and reach out to somebody that to Don't do it alone uh, whether it's you know um, visiting a local shelter domestic violence advocate um, in the area, but make sure that there is somebody there that can help you walk through the process before you just talk to your abuser and say that you're leaving. Um, You know, I blurted out and just told mine, we're done and I don't wanna be there. And it just ignited a storm um, that spiraled out of control. And with nobody listening in the process but everybody got to see it and could have changed for it could have been a very different scenario in the end and for many women it is um yeah and that is very unfortunate and so i just um and what people don't hear but it i it is in the book the night that that occurred my husband, in that drunken rage, was sent home. To my fifteen-year-old daughter, in that way. I
1: know when I read when I read that in the book, I'm not even going to lie. I was like, I, 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 I didn't know what to do with myself. Honestly, right? Um. Yeah, yeah. I can't even go into details because yeah. it's too much for me. And, but
0: and so while while the pedestal erupted afterwards about the man and his military pictures. My husband was not honorably discharged. My husband was kicked out of the military, of all of which I found out after he was had died. But this man has had problems. And so for, for somebody to have sent him home with the amount of alcohol that was found out to be in his system and the amount of rage that he was showing that night, I am very grateful. For for my daughter so of of that kind of grief that I felt afterwards there I yes, I am glad that that my daughter was not taken out that night because that That would have I don't know what I would have done So you can't No, I can't but it it that stuck with me for a long time And um you know, and I'm, I'm grateful. Like my daughter's graduating this year with honors.
1: I love that. Congratulations, mom. you you're, you're amazing. You're, you did great. <laughs> and I have, my
0: oldest is, has already two, two degrees graduated also honors
1: and has a beautiful career. Wow. So you did your thing. I'm so, so proud. Like you inspire me. I hope that I can say the same thing when my daughter's no, so
0: I I am amazingly proud of these two women, and they have done beautiful things with their lives. And I am um, for everything that some have thought they would take, or it has made a very strong bond. And it's a it's very beautiful to watch how they've grown into themselves. Um, and for them. I mean, I can say I'm so proud as their mother and to watch them and I'm so glad where they are, but to see how they have taken their lives for themselves and that's mm-hmm. and the life that they came and the traumas they've gone through, that's amazing. Yeah. So I'm very proud of them.
1: Just out of all the bad, there's always got to be some good yeah. somewhere, you know, and as much as you guys have gone through together as a family, it's so amazing to hear that you guys still have a good relationship and it might not be perfect. You know, there's always going to be those ups and downs. No, we but, do. you know, every,
0: there's always bad days and, you know, normal people have that. Um, you know, and I think that is what helps us be normal. We have you know, good days and bad days. And, but I, I think that helps remind us of there's normality in our life too. Um, so that's good.
1: I'm so proud of you. Your book is amazing. I will definitely link it in my show notes for everyone to go by. Because it's very interesting. You are like a legend. You don't know it yet, but you are. I appreciate <laughs> it. And I'm just really grateful to have been able to have this conversation with you. And yeah, it's been amazing. You have so much insight and wisdom. And I just... Commend what you've done in the work that you're doing, and just putting yourself out there. It's not an easy thing to do, but it has to be done for our sanity and to hopefully help other people I too. Hope so,
0: because so. um, if nothing else, that was the the point of doing all of this is that if it just helps a few people, and there's a reality to it. But there is a you know, at the same time, you know, it gets lonely, but. Where there's others of us out there, and we do come through it. Mm-hmm. And some days are butterflies and unicorns, and some days are not. Um, but that's okay too. Exactly.
1: There's another day tomorrow. It is. It is.
0: <laughs> and um, and I'm a firm believer of the dial a friend kind of scenario. So when it's not that kind of a good day, to reach out to mm-hmm. someone. And we have a yes. network where if it's not working for somebody else. Them, they know they can contact me and we know we that sheltering putting that burden some days you just have to drop it on someone else and we all kind of mm-hmm. throw it around um, whether it's two in the morning or two in the afternoon and that helps with the sanity yeah too.
1: yeah and that's the beauty of humanity and if all else yeah we're all just hanging in there trying to survive yep. so <laughs> absolutely Caged is a window into the toughest moments of Sabinash's life, moments no one should ever have to endure, but she did. And as with nearly all trauma, there is a measure of healing to be gained in the sharing of her story. Healing not just for herself and for her family, but for others who like Laura have lived under the veil of domestic violence for years. Sabinage offers a call to action for reform, encourages others to seek out help, and urges those in positions of authority to assess existing procedures and question certain long-standing policies. I will link her book in my show notes and any other resources that we might have discussed in the episode today. Please remember it is never too late to educate yourself or connect with other people who have had similar experiences as yours. You owe it to yourself. Because you are beautiful, even in the mess that might surround you. Thank you for coming back for another episode of Sierra Unraveled. And until next time, stop letting them unravel you, because only you can unravel yourself.